0: If you blinked, you might have missed it, but there really was a tremor in the Vatican this past few weeks. Clouded by news of war, and a papal cone of silence, you could say, a major synod on power within the Catholic Church wrestled with some divisive questions. There was a lot of tension in the room, much of it unreported until now. Christopher White is Vatican correspondent for the independent newspaper, The National Catholic Reporter. He shared his insights during his current visit to Australia.
1: I don't think secrecy was the goal, but I think it did risk having the appearance of secrecy. That being said, at the end of the month, there were a number of delegates who were quite critical of the guidelines who said to me, I don't like the fact that we've established this sort of you know, silence around the discussions, but it's worked. Mm. It's actually established uh, an environment where we can speak freely. As they look ahead to next year, sort of the, the, the second session of the Synod, there will be a, an effort to modify the rules so that there's communication about what's happening and a way to maintain the trust, but with a sense of pulling back the curtain a little bit further.
0: You actually did manage to pull back the curtain because you did have some very good sources inside the Synod. Just how heated, just how excitable did it get? Well, the Synod delegates had been warned by
1: one of the Synod organizers at the beginning to not be afraid of tensions. Early on in the Synod, we saw that, the tensions sort of bubbling up straight away, and that took on a a few different varieties. There were reports of uh, at least uh, two bishops leaving the Synod Hall upset because either they were seated with someone with whom they had some vehement disagreements, or they were just upset that there were lay people in the room to begin with. For them, this was a synod of Bishops, and so why are there these laymen and women in the room with me? The conversations at these round tables that the Synod uh, had were new for a lot of church leaders who are used to kind of keeping things at a certain level of discourse, where you don't name the disagreements, and the whole purpose of of the month-long summit was to actually establish disagreement and to see where those
0: areas of convergence and divergence lie. It was a real challenge though I think to authority. Weren't there some bishops who imagined that they could um, shut down dissenting priests or or annoying nuns or annoying lay people and they were quietly reminded maybe not so quietly reminded your power disappeared when you walked into this room yeah i mean i think to understand just what a a
1: revolution this is for the catholic church you know past synods or these big summits have taken place inside the vatican synod hall where there's stadium seating this event brought bishops and cardinals together at round tables face to face Uh, to have these discussions about a number of sensitive areas in terms of church life and ministry. I'll give you one example. There was a bishop taking notes from his group's discussions, and he saw a priest from his table kind of observing him take these notes, The bishop snapped at the priest, that if you don't stop doing that, I'll have you thrown out of this room. And the way the story was recounted to me by another person at the table, the way he said it, you effectively don't
0: have that power. And the bishop didn't realize he didn't have that power because this was a level playing field. So what were some of the issues that I won't necessarily say divisive, but let's say caused the most excitement (laughs) in the room? We're Westerners,
1: so I think for many of the Western delegates, the issues of LGBTQ inclusion, the role of women in the church, the question of whether or not they can restore the ordination of women to the diaconate, these were live topics that I think everyone was excited about. For a lot of the African delegates, the question of dealing with polygamy was a a hot-button issue. Issues like clergy sex abuse. Obviously, in Australia and the United States, my home country, these are issues that the church has been reckoning with for decades now other parts of the world, this is still very much a new frontier. And so I think it was trying to, in a sense, put all these issues on the table.
0: Yeah, I noticed that even on perhaps that most disputed question, the one of women as deacons, that is a clerical role just below that of a priest, the resolution uh, to look at the issue further still passed, I think, 279 votes to 67. Uh, The clergy celibacy, again, you know, let's look at the issue further. Further, it passed 291 votes to 55. Do those numbers suggest that Pope Francis has succeeded in changing power within the Catholic Church? They're pretty overwhelming. All of these
1: proposals passed by over 75 percent. These are serious majorities. This isn't the first time though that a synod or one of these meetings has proposed to the Pope that he move ahead. In 2019, the Pope had a synod on the Amazon region, the, the nine nations in, in Latin America that make up the Amazon. And at that synod, the synod by again a two-thirds majority, greenlit the issue of women deacons and relaxing the celibacy rules in certain areas. So, I think we're seeing a pattern now uh, mm-hmm. of you know continually these synods being held these issues cropping up and they're getting
0: sizable numbers. Mm. Even though the numbers just on those two questions, for example, uh, women deacons and married priests uh, seemed overwhelming uh, in favour of let's keep talking, there was that rump. Who who constitutes that rump that's opposed to it, from, from what you could gather? On the question
1: of women deacons, I'd say primarily a number of bishops from Africa, don't feel the need for women deacons in their own particular diocese and communities. The resistance to Pope Francis has largely come from the Anglophone world, the United States, Great Britain, uh, Australia. Some voices from those respective countries certainly would have joined with the African bishops
0: to oppose women deacons. Mm. Uh, There was a show of uh, defiance, dissent. I, I don't know that it was inside the Synod, wasn't there a parallel gathering in Rome, not so far from the gates of the Vatican, at which uh, Pope Francis's bete the American Cardinal Raymond Burke, appeared? There were many sideshows, if you will. There are always in these summits the
1: synods that happen inside the room and the summits that happen outside the room. On the eve of the synod, at the start of the October meeting, Cardinal Raymond Burke, who is a traditionalist Catholic from the US, who's been one of the Pope's sort of fiercest uh, and most vociferous critics, basically held a big press conference. It wasn't exactly a press conference, because at a press conference you take questions from the press. He sort of uh, held a session to sort of lambast this in it and to basically say it was uh, a meeting that threatened 2,000 years of Catholic tradition and that Catholics from around the world should be concerned.
0: In your considered opinion... Was this synod actually an attempt by Pope Francis to rebalance power within the Catholic Church? They give it this title, "Dallas as Dishwater, Synod on Synodality, maybe to deflect a lot of media interest. But was there an agenda here? Of course there was an agenda. There's always an agenda when you have these sort
1: of summits. The agenda of this synod and in a sense, Pope Francis's entire pontificate has been to sort of reckon with the fact that the church is not just the priests and the bishops, but for all of the people of God, and for everyday Catholics to have a say in the future of their church, for the church to become more inclusive, more participatory, What that will look like is still a bit opaque. That's certainly the direction in which he is trying to travel. You know, he's faced opposition, but this is his effort to to persevere ahead and to try to bring the whole church along with him. Mm. How long do you think this papacy has to run? I think this papacy, it's fair to say, is in its end game, whether that's a year or even five years. It's still the end game if it's a ten-year papacy we're into already. The Pope is pushing 87. He'll turn 87 next month. He's had a number of health setbacks in recent years. For 87 years old, he's doing quite well. He gets around better than he did a year ago. His mental acuity is, is quite sharp. He continues to travel, but he's, he's not going to live forever, and he, more than anyone, is
0: aware of that. I've heard that he does want to retire. He wants to create a pattern of the papacy not being for life. He doesn't want Benedict XVI's retirement to be a one-off. He doesn't want it to be an anomaly. He wants it to be the start of a pattern. I think he gave a lot
1: of indications in that direction early on in his papacy. Around the 10-year mark, he sort of stepped back and tried to walk back some of those comments. The general consensus at this point among Vatican observers like myself is that, This is a pope who enjoys being pope, and he has things he wants to accomplish, and as long as he can keep doing that, he will stay in the job until the end. If he gets to a point where his health or other reasons preclude him from truly governing, from traveling, which he really enjoys as pope, then I think retirement is very much on the table. I mean, the challenge is a pope is elected for life, and I think we've seen this in in recent conclaves because of that, the cardinals who select the next pope are reluctant to name a pope who is especially young because they don't want another 30-year papacy like John Paul II. Mm. Unless a pattern is established that popes can and do retire, we're going to find ourselves selecting a lot of septuagenarians, octogenarians as
0: pope. Mm. You mentioned the next conclave. Is he nurturing a successor? At this point, he's got just over two-thirds, he's named
1: two-thirds of the men who will one day elect his successor. So on one hand, you would think they're all Francis's men, but I think the Pope has selected them not necessarily because they are similarly ideologically aligned with him, it's just that they have the same pastoral instincts and he's tried to broaden the geographic diversity of the College of Cardinals. I think what we will see in the next conclave is an effort to kind of shore up a lot of the, the pastoral the direction in which he's tried to steer the church. I think the cardinals may want someone a bit more predictable, a bit more cautious, but I think at this point largely in the same direction and someone that shares the same pastoral priorities with Francis. Names are hard to predict, I, I'll give you a continent, I, I do think we're going to get a European. Uh, in the next conclave, perhaps you know a Canadian. I find it hard to imagine the papacy goes to someone in Africa
0: or Asia at this point. And why is that? I mean I would have thought if that's the direction of church growth, because the evidence suggests that it is, that's where you want to go for your leader. That's a very counterintuitive insight. It's a numbers game and
1: on one hand Many of the men from Africa and Asia just aren't as well known. They haven't been spending as much time in Rome as, say, someone on the continent of Europe does. I also think there is a question of concern about clergy sex abuse. Mm. Traditionally, most dioceses in Africa and Asia have not had the reckoning with clergy sex abuse the way Europe and the United States and Australia have. And there is a concern that the next pope will need to have a clean slate on abuse and you don't want to elect someone where their record is unknown.
0: Mm. And just on that final point, one name that did come up to me was that of the Maltese Archbishop Charles Shakluna. He's nicknamed the Elliot Ness of the Vatican. but, But that is because he does have a genuinely good record on purging sex abusers from the Catholic Church. Archbishop Chacluna has
1: had to deal with some of the church's most horrific abuse uh, situations and I think he's someone that most clergy abuse victims trust. They believe when he arrives in a place he's going to clean house and present the facts, and I think many people in the Vatican see him as someone they can send to a particular hotspot and get the job done. I'm personally surprised that he has not been made a Cardinal yet. Should he get the Cardinal's red hat, which I do think is a a real possibility, I think he's immediately someone that uh, would be considered a
0: Just one final question. Christopher, you're, you're here in Australia. I think now it's the first time since uh, the post-war years that Australia does not have a cardinal. Any intel there about whether that might be changing at some point in the next few years?
1: Yeah, Australia does not have a cardinal. Milan does not have a cardinal. Paris does not have a cardinal, Los Angeles does not have a cardinal. This is one of the great frustrating things for many people about Pope Francis is that he defies a lot of traditions like this. Australia will certainly have a cardinal in the future. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets another one under Pope Francis. Obviously the Pope has been keen to recognize the work that someone like Archbishop Tim Costello has done in the Plenary Council. The Plenary Council has very much shaped the global synod process and if I was betting, uh, my money would be on him if Pope Francis names another cardinal from Australia.
0: okay, I'm not a betting man, but it's good intel. It's been great to speak with you here in person. Christopher White, he's the Vatican correspondent for the independent newspaper, the National Catholic Reporter. He's been in Australia, mainly with the Diocese of Parramatta, on a speaking tour. Christopher, thank you for being with us on the Religion and Ethics Report.
1: Let's do this in person more often.